Well, welcome to this second edition of Palestine Deep Dive. And today, two and a half million to three million Palestinians remain besieged in Gaza, and the region once again hovers over full scale and a desperately unequal war. I'm joined by Rana Shuber uh, and an old friend of the show, Dr. Ramzi Baroud. Now, Rana joins us from Gaza City. She's a Palestinian author, mother, uh, and English language trainer. Ramsey, of course, is a, the, uh, is a Palestinian journalist, media consultant, author, and founding editor of the Palestine Chronicle. And he joins us from Seattle. Now, as I mentioned, um, Rana is in Gaza City. We're delighted that she's been able to join us today. On this of all days, I believe, um, I mean, Rana's going to tell us in a minute what the current situation is, but we know there have been uh, attacks on Gaza for a number of days now from Israel, and that these attacks have continued uh, today. We understand that there appears to be some kind of uh, ceasefire coming back in again under the aegis, essentially, of uh, Egypt. But we're also reading, um, as as we just come on, came on air, that Prime Minister Netanyahu says this is not over. Um, and so, uh, thank you to you both. Thank you to Rana because this is a particularly difficult time, and so we totally understand. I know it's it's quiet at the moment. You were saying, but if um, if by any chance you have to leave us, we understand. But I wonder, given that you are actually there, and of course in, in our media we don't often hear from uh, ordinary Palestinians who are actually in Gaza or actually in the West Bank. Uh, so we're delighted that you are here with us. Perhaps you could just give us an idea, if you will, Rana, what you've been and what your family's been going through these past couple of days. Yes, so thank you, Mark, and thank you for uh, hosting me on this talk on your show. Um, uh, what happened, uh, what started two days ago, was totally an unpredictable thing for everyone. It shocked everybody because we thought we were having a peaceful day uh, and evening and we were out with family we came back home late night we went to sleep and then just suddenly out of nowhere we hear these huge explosions and we woke up them and um, my kids came running into my room telling me they've uh they've um they've attacked um they've shelled an apartment in uh in uh, in, in our neighborhood uh, and it turned out that they uh, were at the same time as they did in 2008. They they uh, they attacked three different places across Gaza Strip at the same time, killing three uh, uh, Islamic Jihad commanders. But also knowing that these places that they attacked are residential buildings and fully packed neighborhoods. Um, so the number of casualties uh, was not only among the PIG members, there were children, um, the wives of these members, and some of their children got killed, some of them left behind, and also ordinary citizens. My personal uh, family dentist was killed, which was really uh, devastating for me, and I'm still trying to really uh, think I mean, grapple with this fact that I'm not going to see him again. He was killed with one of with his wife and one of his sons, and three his other three children were left behind. It was very heartbreaking, and um, I thought, you know, what makes Israel just 
this you know what what gives it this um you know uh courage to just you know attack civilian homes in the middle of the night uh, at its will uh and the answer is always the same it's never been held accountable for its crimes and you know when you think about this you know about homes just being attacked in the middle of the night or like they did in august in broad daylight there is no uh, safety here in gaza not even at home well i was going to ask you rana um you know how are your how are your daughters um and, and i think we've in fact i i, I know that um uh, we've spoken to you before and and uh, we've seen video of your daughters in slightly happier times with uh, with some of their artwork but and maybe we can have a a look um shortly revisit some of those videos but how how are, how are they actually coping uh today and how are the children coping? so um i didn't hear the last question how they're coping yeah how how are your daughters coping and, yeah. and how are other children uh that you've come across coping well uh when my children when were younger i mean it was harder for me because they didn't you know they grew up under every single major war that was waged against gaza and they had lots of questions they had panic attacks they um i i dealt i mean i had a hard time dealing with though with them during those years when they were younger and because you couldn't explain everything to them they wouldn't understand they just you know wanted to be safe and uh, when they were younger i tried to deal with this through you know um I guess talking to them, um, taking them to making them, you know, uh, taking them out to do activities like to go horseback riding, to go swimming, to do just anything that would help them, you know, release all this negative energy they had inside. And they did lots of drawing and painting, as I've said before in a, another video. And till this day, they um, they grow up now. They they do what makes them relax. Um, they understand everything that's going on, and sometimes they calm me down. Uh, so uh, for other kids around, it's the same. I mean, the mothers, like yesterday, one of the kids that was killed, um, he, he's a friend of some of, of he's a friend of someone I know. So the the mother was trying to explain to her son that his his friend has been killed, and she didn't know how to approach this matter because her there he's only nine years old and she posted this on instagram actually and i think i sent it to uh to palestine deep dark for them to see that um she told him you know that uh he there there's been an attack a new friend uh is in heaven now and all of that and her her child and he was like mom i don't understand what you're saying i'll only understand when i go back to school and see that he's not there so, I mean, I imagine every mother in Gaza has her own uh, suffering, her own uh, traumatic experiences with her kids, and everybody just has to find a way to deal with them. Well, Rana, of course, the Israeli government is saying that these, uh, these attacks have been uh, precision attacks. Uh, but as you were just saying, we know that there have been uh, at least 10 or more civilians killed, including children. We know that 20 or so more people have been uh, injured. Um, and of course, uh, you know, we know from uh, from what's been happening that this is is just part of an ongoing attack on Gaza. It, goes, it has its ups and it has its downs. And actually, um, 
one i think i i'm I, hopefully we might be able to bring this up because children of course are going to be affected over quite a long period of time and there's yeah. a, I think your daughter has, has has produced some very powerful images um uh, which which show that trauma actually so that trauma comes out in the in the painting i don't know if we're able to to see that example that yes that, there we are i mean pre briefly can you can you talk us through this this painting by your daughter yes. how, how old was she went to do it as well she just drew this today actually oh wow uh, she's 17. um so uh uh, actually, most of the time, I have a hard time like uh, deciphering her paintings. But this one, I could see clearly because of the buildings, like this kangaroo is trying to protect uh, Gaza, maybe. And she's um, and sometimes Gaza through the good and bad times, I guess. Gaza is under attack, but it's still it's it, it go it goes back to you know be to light. It goes it keeps shining. Um, so I think that's what she's trying to say in this painting, yeah. And th those buildings are Gaza, and you can see they have eyes and mouths. They're gaping at people. Yes, I mean I think it's very difficult for all of us watching, and there are people watching from all over the world, by the way, uh, to to really appreciate and understand what what you are all um, experiencing and, and going through. That look, there there they are again with beautiful <laughs> sunflowers. Look, the thing is, I must just bring in um, before we come to you, Ramsey. Um, some of the messages from uh, from viewers. Uh, Kiara says hello from the west of Ireland. Hashna, hello from Bangladesh. Um, Una van der Hoevel, thank you for this webinar. Nice seeing you yesterday on the Zoom. Ben Shaw, evening from Yorkshire. Hello from Canada. Um, and uh, yes, uh, what else? Yes, Palestine deep dive. That is us. We want to hear from you. So please post your questions here in the chat. Um, hello from Italy, says Heather. Um, Chiara says, I read I read Ramsey Baroud's books, The Last Stand and Searching Janine in the last few weeks. They're beautifully written, incredible interviews, but heartbreaking. Vicky says, I know young children are so traumatized even when no longer living in Gaza. So, Ramsey, if I can um, come to you, and you're joining us uh, from Seattle, thank you. Thank you uh, for, for, for taking time out. Um, as you know, this is, this is, all, this is all happening um, at the time that the world is commemorating the NACPA. Um, you, uh, you'll know that for the first time uh, in 75 years, the United Nations is actually commemorating the NACBA. This is a result of a vote in the General Assembly back in 2012. On the 15th of May, the UN will be commemorating the NACBA. Uh, um, but in a way, what we're seeing now um, might suggest that looking back and commemorating might negate the idea that actually this is a continuing process. And I wonder if you might just briefly talk about Ramsey, you know, that we have the Nakba, but we are seeing in real time what is happening in Gaza, and not just in Gaza, but in the past uh, few days also in the West Bank. Uh, thank you very much, Mark, and thanks very much um, uh, to Rana and Palestine Deep Dive for their impressive contributions, always to the discussion on Palestine. I think it's very important that we keep in mind that 
for Israel, wars are all about timing, all about strategy, all about politics. This nonsense that we hear in mainstream media, quoting Israeli officials and politicians and the likes of Netanyahu, Gallant and others, that this is about security, it's preemptive attacks, uh, self-defense, none of it, none of it is true and it has everything to do with timing. Your point, Mark, regarding the Nakba, this is very, very important what the United Nations is doing. I know it is ultimately symbolic and I know it's not going to bring one single Palestinian refugee back to his destroyed village or her destroyed town in Palestine. But the point here is that after all of these years of Israel doing its utmost to erase the Nakba memory, to erase not just the Nakba memory and all the crimes that Israel has committed in historic Palestine and upon which Israel was established, but it has also tried to erase it as an urgent political topic. It has pressed on the Palestinian negotiators throughout the years. You can't talk about the Nakba. In fact, soon before the so-called Camp David uh, talks between Ehud Barak, Bill Clinton, and, and Yasser Arafat uh, in, 2000, uh, in, in the year 2000, Israel passed a political decision forbidding a single Israeli politician of discussing the Nakba or the right of return for Palestinian refugees as part of the political process. After all of this, where Israel felt quite comfortable that that past history has been canceled out entirely, we are talking about Oslo, we are talking about new history, new tragedies, new traumas, but we're not talking about 1948 anymore. Suddenly, the Nakba is once more at the heart of the conversation everywhere. Uh, politically, intellectually, academically, on social media, it's all about the Nakba. And that is devastating for Israel. And this is why I bring up the issue of timing. I think Israel knew that there will be a, a much discussions about the Nakba, hundreds of conferences all over the world, numerous interviews and, and rallies all over the world from Britain to South Africa, all dedicated to the Nakba. And it wants it wants to push that out of the news cycle. And it wants the conversation to be Israel's right to defend itself as the US State Department said yesterday. I don't think they will succeed because here you ask the question of what is happening in Gaza right now within the context of the Nakba. And I think everyone else who cares about the truth is going to contextualize the war on Gaza as we speak within that larger history over the Nakba that goes back 75 years ago. I mean, Ramsey, it does become rather difficult for the Israelis, doesn't it? When um, there, is, there is that strategy, as you say, uh, especially if Washington can take it up, Israel acting in self-defense. We've heard this so many times. But if people can, and as they have, listened to some of the members of this Israeli government, and heard their promises and heard their desires about driving Palestinians out, it becomes really, really rather self-defeating, doesn't it? It's, it, it, can't, it can't work because uh, really it's people have moved on, but world opinion seems to be moving on. And I suppose that could bring us to a, another question, which is, and we were just briefly discussing before we came on air, um, the Israelis were once famed for being quite, the Israeli government was was once quite famed for being pretty good in terms of its uh, media uh, 
tactics and presentation. But all of that seems to be failing now as well, doesn't it? That's right. I mean, we know that Netanyahu, as a prime minister, is bankrupt, politically bankrupt, not only in the eyes of uh, the international community of the Middle East region, but even in the eyes of his own people. I mean, since January, massive protests that included millions of Israelis want him out. He is corrupt. His family is corrupt. And I'm not talking about the corruption by Israeli standards. I'm talking about corruption by any standards. Theft, money, nepotism, favoritism, fascism, everything. He's trying to control Israel in order for him to keep running his personal racket and keeps to benefiting along with his far-right constituency, which now includes Itamar Ben-Vir, Bisley Smotrich. We are talking about really, really nasty people here. But also Israel as a state is politically corrupt. And Israel as a state is intellectually corrupt. And this corruption and bankruptcy is not a new process. It's an old process. It's just we did not, we could not expose it because mainstream media has blocked us every step of the way. We couldn't get to the New York Times. We could hardly get our voice in the BBC. And these are the people and the media entities that control the conversation on Palestine. Average Americans, average British, until quite recently, took Israel's side simply because they did not understand. Not because they were Zionists and because they are Islamophobes and hateful of Palestinians, they simply did not understand. But how can you not understand now when you have pictures like a little girl, Layan, today, 10 years old, and a little boy, Tamim, five years old, the most beautiful Palestinian children? Um, that you will ever see are are on social media with their videos uh dressed up for their uh for for the Eid uh speaking speaking to us speaking to us Layan was telling us today this is the proper way of saying peace be peace be upon you uh in Islam and she is teaching little kids on how to say peace be upon you where is the peace in Layan's life she is gone now where is the peace in, in, uh, uh, in, 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 in Tamim's life and the lives of all those Palestinians, the 22 and counting, who have been killed since yesterday? We've seen them, we've heard them. How can Israeli propaganda, how can Zionist propaganda, how can the Ministry of Truth and Hasbara in Tel Aviv be strong enough to muffle the voices of Layan? They are all over social media. Millions of people have heard her speak. And this is why Israel is becoming bankrupt intellectually, morally, and it's exposed because of the power of the Palestinian voice, even of little children after they die. Rana, I mean, I mean listening to, to, to Ramsey there and looking at those pictures and Hearing also from you of your experiences, what you've what you've seen, I mean, do you feel a, a bit more hopeful because more people in the world are more aware? I mean, before you answer, I mean, I would simply say that what Ramsey was saying in terms of the reach of social media, how traditional media that was not interested or blocked or whatever it was doing essentially has been bypassed and has to react now. And also we do have a greater understanding uh, in countries like Britain, beginning, beginning of the history 
and the history of this country in particular and why this country has a special responsibility. So people have got a greater understanding of that. But is that any, I mean, how does that sit with you? Does that, does that, does that make you feel a bit more confident that what you're going through um, what you're experiencing may yet one come to an end one of these days. Well, yes, I, I think um, the I have always had faith in uh, in people in grassroots movements, and uh, I mean I've been I've been I've been watching what uh, the uh, the protests in Britain against um, Elbert Systems calling for the shutdown of these uh, factories that manufacture weapons, which are tested on us here in Gaza, because, you know, Gaza is a testing field for the Israelis, for these uh, weapon companies. And I I mean, when I see these protests, even if they're small, but when I see consistency, you know, in these protests and people uplifting our voices and people talking about us, um, speaking about the Palestinian narrative and uh, communicating our stories, uh, trying to, you know, um, uh, get interviews, for example, on, on any media outlet. I know that we're blocked on mainstream media, but doing what they can, even if there's just small steps, I think it gives us all hope and it makes us feel that we're valued, that we are heard, uh, despite, you know, what is happening to us. And, you know, this is the way of this is the way it is i mean injustice is not going to go in in a day it takes decades change takes time um so we are uh, we have hope in people like you just ordinary people who who feel that they uh that connect with us as humans and they want and they um refuse this injustice and this oppression that is up that's up on the palestinian people um but what really um Sometimes, I guess at difficult times like these, which are, we're going through now, sometimes we tend to get hopeless because, uh, uh, because um, you know, Israel keeps attacking at its will. And we're like, we're always asking, why do they get away with it? Why can't they just do what they want? Uh, I was just looking at Twitter a few minutes ago and uh, someone on Twitter wrote, um, that two million, uh, as they are about to announce, um, hopefully, inshallah, a ceasefire, um, two million Gazans will now go back to being forgotten, caged in a permanent state of non-life and expected to keep quiet about it. 21 Palestinians killed to satisfy the Israelis' far right and boost government approval ratings. So we don't want this um, solidarity only in times of hardship. We want consistency and people to keep, you know, um, keep up what they're doing, keep uplifting our voices, keep talking and keep making noise. Uh, and also for us here as um, activists, people, writers, anyone, we have to keep, you know, speaking up about what we're going through. Well, yeah. Well, thank you, Ron. And, and also, you were referring to that to that direct action um, uh, and and uh, towards this uh, company, Elbit in Leicestershire. Um, and I think today the uh, one of the Leicester City members of Parliament, Claudia Webb, spoken out very, very strongly in support of that action. And so hearing more uh, solidarity such as that from uh, public representatives uh, is a good thing. But of course, as you know, uh, as just as we have been seeing, both of you will appreciate this, I'm sure, and I'll come to you both for comments, but to you first, Rana, in terms of what we see 
in social media, in alternative media, reporting what's happening in Gaza, reporting what's been happening in Nablus and Jericho. Um, we have also seen a sort of, especially in a country like Britain, also Germany, a kind of retreat from the public debate realm by politicians, um, too frightened until quite recently to be speaking out in favour and support of the Palestinians, um, in case they might be accused of being anti-Semitic. Now, we've had this discussion before with Ramsey, um, but we've also just seen uh, one or two other interesting developments. The um, the famous uh, international rock star musician Roger Waters won his case to have his concert in Frankfurt, um, a quite extraordinary attempt by Frankfurt Council to stop it from going ahead. But we are seeing more and more pushback. So do you think, Rana, that this is, you know, the reality of what we're seeing is once again emboldening people? Because for, for, for some time now, a lot of voices have been stilled because they've been frightened of being accused of being uh, anti-Semitic if they're critical of the Israeli government. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I think uh, activating BDS on all levels is very important. And what you mentioned, the, the cultural aspect uh, of BDS, uh, whether in, uh, you know, culture, in sports, in, uh, in, um, in, the act, in, uh, in filming, in singing, all of these um, uh, fields of, uh, all these fields, people can take um, action and, um, Say, speak up against you know the oppression uh, and I think it especially uh, sometimes it comes after um, you know these people realize that uh, like the is Israel is an apartheid regime because you know this was um, reinforced by the report issued by um, Human Rights Watch a few months ago identifying Israel as an apartheid uh, regime uh, so when people make you know these um, realize these uh, facts and they follow up on our stories on these reports it makes them take action and uh, i think that for the mps maybe i guess they have to make their own calculations as we say in arabic because they might lose their job forever uh, although they are in a place in where they uh, which um they have to make change or they are in a position to make change uh, but yeah when i see these people these rock stars uh, um, athletes pulling out from uh, matches because there's an Israeli opponent, for example. Uh, it, it's still, even if it's small, like I said, I think it makes us, um, it gives us hope, yes. And um, there, it's going to be small at the beginning, but, you know, the million mile journey starts with a step, as they say. <laughs> Ramsey, what's your take on that? Oh, we can't hear you. So your father... Um, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, you're Can back. you hear me now? Yes, you're with yeah. us, Randy. Yeah. If you look at history, history of resistance movements, for example, South Africa and the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa, you would realize that Palestinians don't really need to reinvent the wheel. The wheel is there and we know how it works. Resistance at home and solidarity abroad. There is no other interpretation. I would love to have a third take or a different theory of how people get liberated. But it has to start with resistance at home and Palestinians are resisting. And it's only the Palestinians who determine the time, place and nature of their resistance. The resistance of, of Sheikh 
Khidr Adnan, who died in a hunger strike after 87 uh, days of hunger strike, uh, is linked to the resistance that we see in Gaza, linked to the resistance in Sheikh Jarrah, linked to the resistance in Nasra, Haifa, and Yafa. It's all part of the same kind of resistance. The, the, the nature of the resistance is determined, however, by the circumstances on the ground, and only Palestinians can make uh, uh, their own mind and their own strategy of how to resist. Or by the way, some of the people killed today, they were killed from the socialist movement. They were socialist fighters, which comes to show you that this is not an Islamic resistance, not secular resistance, it's just Palestinian resistance in all of its manifestations. But solidarity outside, it is absolutely critical. I am not going to cry over the mainstream media betrayal of Palestine. Well, guess what? Mainstream media has betrayed Nelson Mandela and his comrades. Uh, mainstream media has always betrayed, betrayed national uh, liberation movements because mainstream corporate media are by definition, they stand on the side of the powerful, the aggressor, and so forth and so on. That's not going to change. So for us to spend an iota of our energy trying to get mainstream media to be slightly kinder and fairer to Palestinians is a complete waste of time. What you are doing with Palestine deep dive, what others are doing, the numerous alternative online, digital, social media activism is achieving that incremental difference in favor of Palestine. And every day is, a, is better than the day before. People like Roger Waters taking these moral stances, despite of the risks that these stances entail, standing for it, not, not uh, weavering, not, not backing down and pushing. And there are many Roger Waters out there. It, it wakes people up all over the world that it is possible to fight back. And no matter what the price is with our unity, we will eventually be able to get to where we want, and that is the freedom of the Palestinian people. Ilan Papi often speak about the incremental genocide of the Palestinians. Let's talk about the incremental solidarity with the Palestinians. And let's every single day, um, anywhere in the world, be a day in which we achieve that incremental resistance in order for us to finally end Israeli apartheid, dismantle Israeli apartheid, end the Israeli occupation, destroy this racist Zionist regime at work in Palestine. You know, we, we, you know, we have said this before in the past, never again, never again, yet somehow it's always again and again and again against Palestinians in Gaza and throughout Palestine. We'll say, you know, guess what? Never again against any innocent people anywhere in Palestine or anywhere else in the world. Ramsey, the incremental solidarity you were talking about is a very powerful thing, uh, many people would uh, say, because um, even for those, and there are very many people right across the world who are, who are not, uh, who, who, whose lives are, are caught up with other things, they don't necessarily follow the news even on the mainstream media. But most decent people um, who have got a vague understanding uh, know what, are the, what is happening to the Palestinians is wrong. They say so. But what gives it a much more powerful credence is that they also hear, because they're very, very sympathetic to the plight of the Ukrainians whose land has been occupied. And this leads me to the question. There's a question. This is coming from... Jamal, he's actually um, he's actually in Leicester, where this action is taking place against uh, Urbit, the um, the, the military uh, hardware company. 
Now, Jamal uh, asked this question. Shouldn't we be outraged at how callously the Western media normalizes the killing of Palestinian men and those involved in armed resistance? Can't we mourn the death of a Palestinian man or woman? Why should we mourn the death of a Ukrainian resistance, but not at least offer some nuance when it comes to Palestinian men and women involved in defending their people? And I suppose the question is, you know, if you're resisting occupation, whether they, whether it's in Ukraine or Palestine, there should be no difference. There should surely be consistency, shouldn't there? Ramsey, what would you say to that? Absolutely. I mean, this has been... I've, I've suggested this before that I think the word hypocrisy doesn't even begin to describe what is happening right now, where the entire Western thinking and political discourse on war, on resistance, on peace, on justice, on solidarity, on, on anything and everything has shifted within, within hours, within hours when, when Russia invaded parts of Ukraine in, in February. But we have been fighting for 75 years to get the so-called Western world and so-called U.S.-led international community to recognize the inherent Palestinian right in merely defending themselves. And we can't still achieve that. There is no space within the, within the morality, within the morality of the Western world to accommodate that a Palestinian, maybe, under certain circumstances, could in fact stand with a gun and fire at an Israeli warplane that is bombing his house in Khan Yunis or in Rafah or in Jabalia. We still cannot get the international community to acknowledge that. And if a Palestinian does defend himself, regardless of the circumstances, is a terrorist, not a terrorist between parentheses, not some kind of a no, is just a terrorist. But a Ukrainian can do whatever it takes to fight back the Russians. And yet somehow we are all applauding. We are all singing the praises of Ukraine in unison. And we are all waiting for Putin to be brought to the International Criminal Court. Well, when the Palestinians try to get the Israeli criminals to be held accountable before the ICC, Washington actually imposed sanctions. I repeat mm. that they imposed sanctions on ICC judges. Yeah, saying is, that how is, dare you? Ramsey, as you know, this is the same Washington that's not even a member of the International Criminal Court. I mean, which is, is not even a member. So whom did they use? Whom did they use in order for them to do that? What they call friends of the court, Germany. They got the Germans to fight the Palestinians at every corner of the ICC, so that they wouldn't even open a case against Israeli war crimes. And yet somehow these very countries that are not even members of the ICC managed to get an arrest warrant against Putin. This is why I'm saying hypocrisy is not even the word. There is something absolutely beyond outrageous behind all of this. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, um, Rana, um, I'll come to you in a minute. Just I'm just there's a few messages coming through. Uh, I don't know who this is from. Um, but this is this person is I think he's calling himself the unknown. All my love and solidarity for you, full support for your struggle, and BDS from this proud Jew who grew up under apartheid and is now living in Berlin. Uh, David Johnson says so. Right, Ramsey. Um, the question, um, Rana, and this is actually this is from Emma in Manchester because we're talking about the Nakba in. 
in, in addition to what is continuing to happen, the continuing Nakba, the ongoing Nakba against the Palestinians, 75 years on, we've talked about ethnic cleansing. We know that ethnic cleansing has taken place from that period onwards and is continuing. Um, but Emma in Manchester asks, what language should commentators and journalists be using now? Uh, are we looking at a genocide? as many Palestinians are saying. Are we now looking at a genocide? Or has there always been a, a genocide taking place? Yes, well, I think that the Nakba is not an event that we just commemorate about something that happened 75 years ago. No, the Nakba has been ongoing ever since ever since 1948. And when you look at it, it's um, the incremental genocide has never stopped. The destruction, the displacements have never stopped. The uh, uh, apartheid in the West Bank and uh, is very clear. You can see it. It's uh, where where the West Bank has been turned into like a, a, um, uh, like as my friend I was telling you about said there are many Gazas. They're just you know they're isolated areas in the West Bank. The cities they're all controlled on the outside by the Israelis. So uh, the apartheid is is clear. There's a apartheid wall. The, the land theft, the burning of trees, the um, the humiliation and dehumanization of human beings every single day as they go to work. Uh, I mean, he would, my friend was telling me about the the infamous uh, military checkpoints in the West Bank and some of them how uh, like he would find like hundreds of people crammed um, into these uh, trying to get through these military checkpoints and being dehumanized treated like animals and they all have to pass through in an hour and they do this every single day back and forth so um the uh, and when you look at gaza gaza has had its uh, also its share of nakbas and displacement i mean all the israeli aggressions which have been launched against gaza have displaced people all over some of them refugees some of them um, not uh, i know people whose houses have been demolished um, over and over with every single attack and uh, people have you know people uh, they lost their homes they sought refugee refuge in UNRWA schools uh, at uh, relatives homes uh, they lost their businesses and even when they sought refuge in the UNRWA schools they attacked in 2008 they attacked you know the schools and killed the people who were uh seeking shelter there. So uh, the Nakba is, is still present in, in, in yeah. every way, um, in every aspect of our lives, whether here in Gaza, whether in, in West Bank, or even in occupied Palestine, where the, uh, uh, the Palestinians in 1948 lands are not treated as second or third class citizens. They don't have the same rights as the, you know, the Israeli citizens. And they're also, we hear these almost daily incidents of shooting against uh, these pal the Palestinians there, the last of which was a couple of days ago when a settler shot a young 19-year-old Palestinian. You know, they just got out of his car and shot him um, at point blank range, and he, he killed him. So, uh, um, but the, I guess with time, the Israelis have invented new ways of perpet uh, perpetuating this Nakba for the Palestinian people. It has never stopped. Well, certainly they seem to be to develop new weaponry and new ways of making uh, lives miserable and taking lives. 
um, using the kind of weaponry against citizens and civilians, which is absolutely illegal under international law. Another another few comments coming in here. Um, it'd be quite useful if uh, if you're able to uh, before we leave, uh, both of you, to suggest some books uh, for people or or, or articles or magazines uh, for people who want to know more about Palestinian history. It'd be a great help for the seeker of knowledge. Um, as you probably know, um, uh, Ramsey Rana, there's a big event. You were talking about events around the world. There's a big event um, here in London on um, Friday, a couple of days from now, in the Methodist Central Hall to commemorate the Nakba. Um, and that has a particular resonance because that building was where the first meeting of the United Nations General Assembly took place in 1946. And of course, literally a year or two later, the Brit Britain left, abandoned Palestine under de declaring its mandate was over having not actually upheld the mandate in terms of looking after the interests of those it was supposed to do. And so I suppose the question is, um, given where we are, given that we are seeing uh, a special trade deal currently being negotiated between Britain and Israel, given that we have seen British ministers with their Israeli uh, counterparts, despite the fact that this is the most extremist government that there's ever been in Israel, Ramsey, what does it take to get people, the British establishment, the British government to face up finally to their responsibilities? They did finally over South Africa. That took one hell of a lot of effort. But what is it going to take for it to happen here in Britain? Well, exactly, Mark. That, that point that it took uh, a, a lot of efforts uh, in order for us to change the dynamics and the type of relationship. Let's remember that Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were the last, were the last of world leaders to actually acknowledge that, that the apartheid government in South Africa is a racist government uh, and to finally severe their ties. So the question is, what are these efforts and how can we duplicate or at least learn from the previous experiences? What kind of grassroots uh, uh, work that would have to be done, this foundational work that would allow us to expose Israel and its benefactors as well. I know in, in the United States, I know in Britain, of course, this, a lot has been going on for a long time and there are numerous activists and organizations that are working towards that end, but also in the US, we are talking about changes within, within the very fundamental political structure of American society to the point that majority Democrats are actually anti-Israel. This would have been considered unthinkable in the past. So now that we are getting the rank and file uh, uh, you know, to our sides. We know that the, the political institution, the power hubs of the Democratic Party is still very much a Zionist. Biden himself has repeatedly admitted proudly, in fact, that he is a Zionist and he's, a pr he's proud and you don't need, he said, you don't need to be Jewish to be a Zionist. I'm not a Jewish and I'm a Zionist. No. So the question is, how do we turn that support at the foundational grassroots level to actual political assets? and to change the politics on the top. And again, we go back here to the idea of exposing, holding accountable, getting the numbers on our side. The moment that the numbers become on our side, it will become a lot more difficult for those on top to sustain their attitude towards Israel. We know that, for example, just only recently, the EU has canceled an event in Israel because mm -hmm. 
the racist fascist Etamar Ben-Gvir was going to attend. Maybe this would have not happened 20 years ago. For sure it would have not happened 30 years ago. But it happened now. So we are beginning to see some changes. They are not moral changes, mind you. They are political changes that are motivated by the fight at the very bottom. The grassroots fight that, ha that is happening in every society in the West mm -hmm. and beyond. Indeed, Ramsey. And as you were saying that, I was actually also thinking about um, the European Parliament, where the uh, the EU's chief, um, Ursula von der Leyen, the senior commissioner, uh, who has been very vocal in her support of Israel and who's been to Israel, as we know, in the past year, um, and singularly fails to mention the plight of the Palestinians or even international law, has come under quite severe attack by some parliamentarians. And this has been, um, I would argue, just watching it, very, very effective. And also, we haven't really seen anything quite like that in a very, very long time at the European Parliament. Members of the European Parliament standing up and saying, this is hypocrisy, this is nonsense. Why Why were you in Israel? Why did, why did you not mention and raise the issue of the Palestinians? So... Um, Yes, absolutely. What you're saying, what you're both saying is that we are seeing a much greater degree of clarity, it seems, uh, objectivity, it seems, in some quarters, and also a desire by many people to attack this complete lack of consistency and the hypocrisy. So, look, um, Erica Lang says, we must never forget we lost the chance of the most progressive prime minister, this is in the UK, uh, ever over the establishment's protection of Israel and its foreign policy interests. I think that she, Erica, is referring to Mr. Jeremy Corbyn. I'm encouraged to hear that what we're doing with alternative media channels uh, is building incremental support and hope more and more are waking up. Um, yes, what do we have here? Ah, some recommendations of books for people to read. Uh, uh, another book by Ramsey Baroud here. Um, uh, Rashid Khalidi's Hundred Years War on Palestine, of course, uh, books by Ramsey Baroud. Um, you might also suggest The Iron Wall by Avi Schleim as a very good book. It's still relevant. Ah, now a question. We've got another um, 10 minutes, if that's all right, with both of you. And, and thank you, Rana, for... I know it's very difficult. You, you don't know what the situation is outside your own apartment. Um, Rana is in Gaza, as we mentioned earlier. Uh, Ramsey's in Seattle. Rana, um, Sarona in South London asks, uh, what do you wish people in the diaspora, Palestinians especially, um, what should they do? Should they be organizing bodies to lead from the front in their struggle for liberation? Wouldn't this be more uh, effective leadership than that being, well, we haven't really mentioned the Palestinian Authority but perhaps that's because we haven't really been noticing them. Um, yes. You say that pa pa Palestinians are much better bypassing this authority, not least because they don't seem to be able to have any say over it. Yeah, I mean, every attack that happens, we hardly like we hardly hear their voice or their condemnation. And uh, like, look at how many attacks Gaza uh, has been under, and uh, the Palestinian president has never come to visit us. While um, if so-called terrorist attacks happen outside, he just you know goes travels to other countries to give his condolences. And when a soldier, Israeli soldier, 
gets killed, you know, he calls up and gives his condolences as well. So uh, they're not really on our radar. We're not really thinking about them so much. And I think Gaza has learned that it has to stand up for itself. That, um, I mean, we don't really uh, depend. I mean, because Dr. Rosie mentioned the double standards of, of the Western world and of the ICC, of the UN, of every international body out there. I mean, that really has uh, never, I mean, they just issue decisions and, and they cannot make the Israelis, um, you know, um, implement these decisions. So Gaza has learned to stand up for itself. And I think that's the reason why after every attack that Israel initiates, um, that, you know, the mediators uh, rush quickly to uh, call in for a truce because they don't want, you know, the Israelis to get hurt. And uh, because they, that's the only language that they understand. I mean, there is no political representation for us. Our, the authority does not, has not benefited our cause in any way. And so, um, although we, uh, we're all alone here on the ground, we have to fight the struggle ourselves. Resistance is something that is um, part of our rights uh, as a people under occupation. And speaking of deterrence, uh, Israel announced that um, it uh, carried out this so-called Operation Shield and Arrow in order to restore its power of deterrence. And I don't think it has achieved that regard. Um, so I'm sorry, I think I just diverted. The, I forgot the That's question. Right. I mean, but, but do you think that it might be possible for a kind of alternative leadership to emerge in exile? I mean, this has happened before um, and it's happened with other countries too. Uh, if it's impossible to have a, of a, a, of course you have a resistance um, in the Palestinian territories, but, but a, a political resistance outside the country that could be more emboldened, that isn't kind of hollowed out or corrupted, as some people believe. Could this yeah. come about? Do you think? I don't really. I mean, I don't know how to answer this question. I, I mean, it's hard to imagine that. Uh, that. I mean, how would the Palestinians be able to, um, you know, uh, form a, a new leadership outside? I really can't answer this question. Mm. Well, maybe I could ask Ramsey because, you know, yeah. these things can't just be arrived at. But I mean, we we, right. we know from the past that, you know, Palestinian leadership has at different times been quite remarkable in terms of some of the great literary figures, the campaigning figures. And in the case of Yasser Arafat. Where is Absolutely. the contemporary Yasser Arafat, if you like? Where is today? I, I think we have, I think, I think, Mark, this is a great question, by the way. I think we have a great leadership. Um, and I, I disagree with those notions that Palestinians, you know, and it's been even uttered by very well respected Palestinian intellectuals. We have been cursed, historically, we have been cursed by bad leadership. It's not true. We actually have great leadership. Our leadership is constantly assassinated. Our leadership is is in prison. We have 5,000 people in prison right now. Many of them are more than qualified to be the leaders of, of, of this new generation in Palestine. So, but the leadership that is allowed and permitted to supposedly represent us and speak on our behalf is extremely corrupt uh, leadership that survives on American and Western handouts. So the issue is not the crisis of leadership per se. The issue is that the leadership is not allowed to form, formulate itself as a leadership. 
Now that takes us back to the first intifada, 1987. In 1987, the Palestinian people took the leadership away from those who imposed themselves as the sole and representative leaders of the Palestinian people. So we start seeing people like Haider Abdul Shafi and people like Saeb Rariqat, people like Hanan Ashrawi and others, this kind of grassroots, uh, well-educated Palestinian leadership emerging from Gaza, the West Bank and elsewhere and forming its own kind of political, formulating its own political discourse and speaking in tandem with the grassroots resistance that was happening in Palestine at the time. Now I think the same thing is happening once more. We are beginning to see a unified Palestinian resistance, not just in Gaza as today particularly has proven, but in the West Bank as well. The Lions then in particular, they are all members of various factions, but they do not speak on behalf of any factions. So we, we are beginning to see non-factional Palestinian resistance formulating in Palestine. And I think as a result, you are also beginning to see Palestinian leaders emerging in Palestine. You don't know of them. I don't know of them because they are operating at a town level, a neighborhood level, a city level. They are, they are the ones running the show in Sheikh Jarrah. They are the ones in Nablus. But they are yet to be formulated as one single centralized leadership. And I think because the time is not quite right yet, I'm not against people, uh, against the Palestinian leadership in exile. But I'm against any kind of leadership that imposes itself in a way that is not organic on the Palestinian people, no matter how well-intentioned they may be. And, and Ramsey, leading on from that, uh, to concentrate the minds of people, especially in countries like the United States and Britain and Germany and other countries in Europe, what do you think they what do you think these politicians can and have to do now in terms of taking out proper sanctions against the Israelis? What must they do? What swift actions can they take? Right. So so my message here is not to the politician. Um, again, there are really good people out there and there are well-intentioned people. But my message is to the, the, the constituencies of these politicians. We have seen recently the cities of Barcelona, the cities of Liège in Belgium, the, even Oslo, Oslo, which is ironic, boycotting Israel at a, at, a, at, a, at a city council level. This is dramatic shift. Just when you start thinking, well, is BDS working or not working? You have these three very important cities launching a new type of sanctions on Israel. This did not happen because of the politicians per se, even though I know that the heads of these councils are very good people and they are trying to do the right thing, but because of the concentrated efforts of their constituencies. So my message to anybody, Germany, France, uh, uh, Belgium, uh, Spain, Britain, anywhere else, organize at a local level and try to achieve, uh, try to get your mobilization uh, of your constituency to actually achieve political ends. The moment you start doing so, we will be able to eventually, with time, reach massive changes or major changes at a centralized political level, as we have seen in some Scandinavian countries. We have seen that in Ireland, and hopefully we are going to be seeing this soon in Spain and other places. 
Well, there's a message for all of you out there who are watching, and especially in Britain, if you've got a uh, city mayor or a council which is uh, which likes to call itself progressive, get them to take this action that Ramsey's called for. Get them to do it. No excuses. Um, look, sadly, we have to bring things to a close. But I'm just going to do. A, I'm just going to go to some of you because we've had some fantastic messages coming in. Lots of people are very very pleased that we've had this discussion. Also. Uh, uh, also saying how brave you are, Rana, and uh, and wishing you and your family all the best, and also for the community around you. Um, we hope that this horror ends and as soon as is possible. Um, we, as a message here, I don't know who this is from, but appreciation from the Netherlands. Uh, thank you, Rana Schubert and Dr. Ramsey Baroud. We stand by you, sending love and courage from Berlin, and that's from Adam Brunberg. Um, Aida Abdel Shafi was brilliant. I'm not sure what that is in relation uh, with. Um, look, we have got, oh, by the way, currently trending on Twitter in UK, Gaza, 184,000 tweets. So there is uh, there is social media in action for you. Um, okay, well, look, uh, Maz says thank you so much to all of you. I think we may have lost uh, Rana, but um, we thank her. And we thank you, Ramsey. Uh, thank all all behind the scenes here at Palestine. Deep dive to Omar and to Alex. And for all of you from right across the world who have joined us today, uh, please continue to do what you are doing and do more and follow Ramsey's advice. Get lobbying, get campaigning, get pushing. And uh, let's make a difference. Thank you. Until next time. Thank you.